Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, Forrest Tilton, will report on the first round of the Colombian elections, which are bad news for the left candidate despite his coming out on top. And Femi Taiwo will explore the complexities of identity politics and elite capture. On May 29th, Colombia held the first round of its presidential election, and since no candidate won a majority, there's going to be a second round on June 19th. Going into the election, Gustavo Petro, a former fighter with the revolutionary M-19 movement who went straight, was seen as the leading candidate, with the establishment right-winger Federico Gutierrez as the runner-up. Gutierrez was a creature of the right-wing machine led by Alvaro Uribe that has run the country since Uribe became president 20 years ago. But there was a surprise, another one of those outsider candidates from out of nowhere we've become familiar with around the world. This one was Rodolfo Hernandez, a businessman with mercurial right-leaning politics who came in second. Petra was thought to be well-positioned to beat the establishment right-winger in a second round, but Hernandez is another story. He's likely to get a lot of Gutierrez's votes, and the hope for a left reformist president looks to be fading. Here with more is a frequent behind-the-news guest, the historian Forrest Tilton. Forrest spent several years teaching at the National University of Colombia in Medellin and is now at the Federal University of Bahia in Brazil. Forrest Tilton. Colombia had a uh, an election with a bit of a surprising result, right? Could you just run down the results and then let's talk about what it all means? As expected, the front runner Gustavo Petro, who is the head of a, a very broad coalition called the Historic Pact, first left candidate in Colombia's history to win in the first round, and he took forty point three percent of the vote, which is a, a good five percent above what he took in two thousand eighteen when he ran. So this would appear to be good news. He roundly defeated the candidate of the right named Federico uh, Gutierrez, the former mayor of Medellin. And Gutierrez became the standard bearer for uh, the far right wing president, Alvaro Uribe, who is also from Medellin. So in that sense, Petro defeated the hard right rather roundly because Gutierrez only picked up 24 percent of the vote. but. The wild card was the former mayor of a secondary city called Bucaramanga. His name is Rodolfo Hernandez. And he took 28.2% of the vote, which is to say almost 6 million votes. He's the 77-year-old businessman. And, you know, outside of being a mayor, he, he hasn't really, he's not been in national politics ever before. Neither has Gutierrez, but Gutierrez had the backing of former President Alvaro Uribe. This guy, Hernandez, is a true outsider and like he's a millionaire, so he could finance part of his own campaign. And he used apparently social media, especially TikTok, very effectively to take some of the youth book, which might otherwise have gone to Petro. Yeah, I was going to say this guy is like 60 years out of the TikTok demographic, right? Yeah, but he, I guess, had extremely um, savvy, media savvy, young advisors around him you know, who got him sort of up and dancing in some of these TikTok videos. And that plays extremely well to at least part of the Colombian electorate. Um, and the idea that, you know, he is going to, as an outsider from the political establishment, put an end to corruption. And ironically, Petro has been in sort of Colombian politics as an opposition figure for so long that some part of the electorate probably considers him sort of part of the the Colombian political establishment, even though he's a he's an opposition figure who, you know, has had to endure sort of constant death threats and um, efforts to end his political career through lawfare and so forth. But nevertheless, it's uh, Hernandez who managed to convince a lot of voters that he was serious about ending corruption, which many people in Colombia feel is kind of like the biggest issue facing the country. And it is certainly an astonishingly corrupt place. But nevertheless, this explains, at least as far as I can understand, the unexpected success of Rodolfo Hernandez. As far as I know, nobody expected him to get much more than 15 percent, and he took 28.2 percent. So that means that in the second round, 
the, the numbers do not look good for Petro because Petro picked up about eight and a half million votes. And between them, Gutierrez and Hernandez picked up 11 million votes. So Gutierrez, as I mentioned, is the sort of standard bearer for the, for the far right uh, represented by former president Alvaro Uribe. And I believe the very day of the election, uh, Gutierrez declared that he would be supporting Hernandez essentially with no ifs, ands, or buts. I, he didn't even try to negotiate concessions. And he labeled Petro a danger to, quote, democracy, our freedoms, the economy, and our children and families. The only department that Gutierrez won, the, the Uribe candidate, was uh, Antioquia, where Gutierrez is from and where Uribe is from. And it's also the most populous department. And, you know, certainly the voters in Antioquia are going to agree with Gutierrez that Petro is a, is a danger to their way of life. And there's a whole range of groups that have been mobilized around the idea that Petro represents a threat to private property and business as usual, even though Petro has said that he plans to carry out no kinds of expropriations if he's elected, not, not private property, not businesses. So this is just pure fabrication using Venezuela as, as a bogeyman and trying to associate Petro with Venezuela, saying that should he be elected, you know, the country would rapidly spiral out of control and become the next Venezuela. So that was the trope that the establishment used against Petro in 2018. And Petro still picked up, I believe, 42% of the vote in the second round, which was historic for the left. And um, it's the bogeyman that Hernandez has also used. Now, Hernandez is from Santander, uh, and in Santander and northern Santander, they border with Venezuela, and it's some of the most conflictive frontier, border frontier areas are, are located in those departments. So it's fair to say that Hernandez performed extremely well in the areas that used to be controlled by the FARC guerrillas who laid down their arms in 2016 and are still controlled by the ELN, the National Liberation Army, which basically operates out of Venezuela all along Colombian border areas in the departments that, that Hernandez is from. So he won those departments, his home departments, and then he won also the departments that used to be ruled basically by, by the FARC. And these are territories that are extremely rich in oil reserves and sort of agro-industry as well. So that, that's where Hernandez performed best. And Petro took the Atlantic coast, the Pacific coast, and some of the Amazonian borderlands departments. So he picked up almost all of the Afro-Colombian vote in the, in the Afro-Colombian department of the Chocó. He won over 70% of the vote, perhaps in part because his vice presidential candidate, Francia Marquez, is an Afro-Colombian environmental activist and former domestic servant who was really important, not only in winning the Afro-Colombian vote, but also in winning the vote of radicalized young people who participated in the, in the general uprising of 2021 that happened in about mid-2021. Francia Marquez was the only kind of political representative to have any kind of dialogue with what was happening in the street or in the neighborhoods during uh, the uprising of 2021. So she was important in terms of getting young people out to the polls in support of Petro, and he won a significant portion of the youth vote, getting Afro-Colombians out to the polls. Petro won uh, overwhelmingly in areas where the indigenous population is large, and he, uh, he also took the southwest of the country pretty handily. So Petro's map of victory lines up almost perfectly with the, the map of the first round victory of uh, Juan Manuel Santos in uh, 2014. And Santos was running on a peace program. So another thing to say about these departments that are that, that Petro won is that many of them are still subject kind of to the aftermath of armed conflict in Colombia even after the peace process with the FARC was signed in 2016. So these are areas that are still being very dramatically affected by Colombia's war economy, which is connected to its cocaine export economy, as well as its mining and energy extractive economy. 
the pundits up here are uh, drawing uh, comparisons to Trump, which seem inevitable. Is there anything to that? I suppose so, in the sense that, you know, he's he's gotten to where he's gotten, which is to say the favorite in the second round on June 19th, the overwhelming favorite at this point. He's gotten to where he's gotten by being a showman of sorts, right? There's no real substance. There's just a, a kind of entertaining show. And, you know, he doesn't have the kind of political experience that he would need to to run the country effectively and, and hasn't really offered too many concrete proposals about just how he would run the country if if he were elected, but that's not been his campaign. So I think, you know, that's vaguely reminiscent of Trump. I think there are echoes of Bolsonaro as well, because Bolsonaro said that he was going to do away with uh, corruption as somebody who was not known in Brazil and therefore was not considered a political insider, even though he had been a he was in Congress for 20 years, though, right? Yeah, but he was invisible. He never presented a bill. He, he was really an incredibly marginal figure. He was a placeholder in Congress. So, you know, I guess there are similarities to Bolsonaro, perhaps to Alberto Fujimori, uh, former president of Peru, who's currently in jail on corruption charges, uh, who also posed as an outsider who would, you know, exercise a firm hand in dealing with uh, Peru's shining path guerrillas. So Hernandez, in terms of war and peace in Colombia, he, he really hasn't said anything about anti-narcotics policy, which is the main issue between Colombia and the United States. And therefore, it's safe to say he plans to sort of more or less continue on course with the status quo. He said that he wants to increase the extraction of uh, mining and energy commodities, you know, basically petroleum, gold and other minerals as well as, I guess, liquid natural gas. And he wants to sort of open those sectors to further investment, is how he stated it. Sort of oil companies, and I think most multinational companies operating in Colombia, they pay almost no taxes or royalties. Um, so there's very little sort of benefit to the to, to government coffers from opening these sectors to further investment. And, and that doesn't appear to be uh, Hernandez's plan. So... Um, in that sense, it would be more neoliberal business as usual. And I think that is, you know, roughly comparable to Trump and Bolsonaro. But with an authoritarian streak or a possible authoritarian streak? Unquestionably. Certainly, you know, there would not be any challenges to the, to the perks and prerogatives and, and above all impunity for the Colombian armed forces, who in theory are supposed to be facing some amount of justice in these special jurisdiction courts that they established as part of the peace process with the FARC in 2016. But with the far right in power since 2018, far right being President Ivan Duque and behind him, former President Alvaro Uribe, the far right has uh, torpedoed most of the important aspects of the peace process so those either have not been implemented or, you know, there's been actual backward motion in some of these areas. I'm speaking with the historian Forrest Hilton. Now, in an interview with the Washington Post, I don't know exactly how long ago this was, but uh, Hernandez said he, he likened his supporters uh, to the 9-11 hijackers, that they were hypnotized and uh, his supporters are messianic. He's, what I'm comparing is uh, after you get into that state, that state of extreme devotion to him, you don't change your position. <laughs> It's like Trump saying he loved the poorly educated or something. But uh, yeah, what do we what do we make of this? Is calling his followers deluded and messianic. So this really marks a, a, an incredibly dramatic contrast with former President Alvaro Uribe, whose basic platform was: we don't negotiate with terrorists; we defeat them militarily by any means necessary. And that means bringing the civilian population into the conflict as much as humanly possible. That was Alvaro Uribe's message, and that's how he came to be president. Uribe also posited himself as an outsider, but he was much more of an insider and everybody knew it. Nevertheless, that was the, the sort of outsider position, uh, an extreme position that he staked out and then made that territory his own and governed the country you know, two times in a row. So what we see now essentially is the is the end of the cycle that opened with Uribe's election in 2002, which is to say a cycle in which 
the far right is is pretty much in the saddle, except for a brief period when the center right was in the saddle and the far right was able to sabotage everything that center right tried to do, i.e. the peace process and um, some really, really minor kind of social reforms. So now Alvaro Uribe, when he came to power, he broke the bipartisan system that had existed for 150 years in Colombia, whereby liberals and conservatives uh, alternated in power. Uribe created a sort of almost cult-like personalist following. So that is something he would have in common with Hernandez, but it was a cult-like messianic nationalism built around counterinsurgency as as maybe the highest uh, human endeavor. And Hernandez sort of takes everything that's wrong with Colombia for granted as not really a problem to be addressed. And so, you know, the idea that he's sort of putting his followers under a spell, uh, that once you're under his spell, you know, there's no way of escaping it, you know, implying that, that he's got a sort of hypnotic, magnetic, almost like fascistic, this is something we associate with fascism, I think, conception of his relationship to, to what he probably calls the masses. This is what I would call sort of bizarre, morbid symptoms of a political system that was closed to any outside expression other than the sort of bipartisan one until it was broken open from the far right. And it's as if the far right, with 20 years more or less in power, only four years in opposition, has broken the country to the point where somebody like Rodolfo Hernandez, who's never been seen on the, in the polit- Colombian political landscape before, could not only gain traction, but actually have you know, the best chances of becoming president on June 19th. Why is the political culture of Colombia so reactionary? You couldn't have that kind of seriously reactionary politics without at least having some roots in the broader population. So uh, how do you explain this uh, incredibly reactionary political culture? I think the best way to explain it, I mean, I'm, I'm currently based in Brazil, and Brazil is another place where elites and the armed forces have mounted what amount to preventive strikes against the possibility of moderate social reform, or in the case of Lula governments, the reality of moderate social reform. But there's a way in which that is in the perception of elites, right, who control the media, who control academia, the business organizations, which have a lot of clout in civil society, the idea that uh, communism is stalking always. It's, it's the ghost that never disappears from the political culture. So there's a way in which like this, this long afterlife of the Cold War is something I think that's remarkable in Colombia. So the FARC guerrillas no longer really exist as a significant threat, and the, and the uh, National Liberation Army is really something of a, of a rump or remnant guerrilla. But nevertheless, the, the threat is, is constantly hyped. So I think that Colombian elites and Brazilian elites share a sort of hyping of the threat with the difference that Colombia has never had a sort of moderate social democratic government like the one that, that Lula and Dilma presided over and like the one that, that Petro promises if, if he is elected. So social democracy, of the sort of moderate social democracy, has always been equated with communism, kind of political and social imaginary of Colombian elites. And that probably goes back to the 1930s when the Liberal Party in Colombia was said to be opening the door to a communist takeover by enacting, you know, very moderate land reform laws, which actually favored the agrarian bourgeoisie, but nevertheless, it was an agrarian reform project, labor laws, which basically opened the door to unionization. All of this was perceived as a slippery slope to communism. And that perception among elites never really disappeared. And I would say that it filters down to significant layers, not only in the urban middle class, but even the urban working class. And I think another way to understand this is that when we look at the the agreement that the liberal and conservative elites in Colombia reached, political and economic, in the late 1950s, after they had engaged in partisan civil war that led to the death of 200,000 people, 80% of them 
men uh, almost entirely from the countryside and illiterate. After that episode of civil war concluded with a bipartisan pact about how liberals and conservatives were going to alternate in power until, uh, I believe, 1974 uh, in an agreement known as the National Front Agreement, third party political expression was effectively shut out. And so there was a monopoly on political representation. And this made armed struggle based in the countryside seem like the most viable opposition to many on the Colombian left. And of course, this was in the wake of the, the Cuban Revolution. So in the 1960s and 70s, the, the armed left grew. It was uneven. And, and there were times where it seemed like the, the armed left was about to be wiped off the map altogether. But they somehow always returned. And at each conjuncture, they returned probably a little bit stronger. And then once they began to tax the coca trade in the 1970s and 80s on Colombia's endlessly expanding agrarian frontiers, they really were able to beef themselves up uh, militarily to a significant degree. And, and then there was a real war on in 1980s and 90s over significant swaths of national territory. And this led to the rise of a new right, uh, the counterinsurgent right led by Alvaro Uribe, which relied heavily on the growth of paramilitary armies that worked hand in glove with, with the Colombian armed forces and the police frequently, but also had private sources of revenue uh, through organized crime and especially cocaine exports. So as the, the guerrilla threat grew and became more than something like a figment of a paranoid elite imagination, the, the Colombian elites, and at least a significant part of both the urban middle class and the urban working class, closed ranks, really closed ranks against uh, not only armed struggle, but really any form of social protest. And that is what has been at stake in many of the most recent nationwide national popular mobilizations and, and the uprising of 2021, the right to protest peacefully. In, in the absence of, of armed struggle of the sort that existed when the FARC was at the height of its power, Colombians are demanding the right to express themselves uh, politically in the, the streets of, of Colombia's major cities without being murdered or, or disabled or injured or arrested and tortured in the process. So I really think it's the consolidation of armed struggle on the Colombian left as a, as a reaction to a closed political system and an oligarchic economic system that led to eventually such widespread counterinsurgent anti-communist sensibilities among all layers of the population. But of course, this, this comes from the top in terms of the Colombian elite being truly united against not the threat of communism, which has never really existed, but against the threat of moderate social democracy, which has materialized in the figure of Petro and his historic pact. And then finally, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but uh, in Brazil, things looking a little more hopeful than they are in Colombia. So the latest polls have Lula up by 25%, two separate polls last week, and have him winning in the first round. And the latest headline I've seen is that women are likely to be decisive in propelling Lula into the presidency, Lula, women and young people. So this would be remarkable just in contrast to uh, Colombia insofar as Petro certainly has very strong backing among young people and women, but probably not strong enough to propel him into the presidency, whereas it looks as though in Brazil, Lula is, is headed to, to re-election. That was the historian Forrest Hilton. You can find his topical writing on South American politics on the London Review of Books website. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Thank you. 
That was some of the first movement to the String Quartet No. 11 by Dmitry Shostakovich, performed by the Sorrel Quartet. It was inspired by the death of a close friend of his who was a member of the String Quartet that would, in reconstituted form, perform its premiere in 1966. It's not, as you heard, a cheerful work. Shortly after its premiere, Shostakovich suffered a heart attack and would spend the next nine years until his death in 1975 in declining health. Next, what are we really talking about when we talk about identity politics? Is it a plot by the big boys to divide any opposition to the dominant setup, or is it a serious threat to the status quo? My next guest, Femi Taiwo, is just out with a book, Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else, published by Haymarket Books. As he argues in the book, the current use of the term has taken us far from its origins with the Combahee River Collective, a black lesbian feminist socialist organization centered around Boston in the late 1970s. Their classic declaration offered a view of the interlocking systems of oppression around race, gender, sexuality, and class as one of the founding documents of what today is called intersectionality. What originated as a call to view all these interlocking systems together in an effort to overcome them has, thanks to what Taiwo calls elite capture, turned them into a particularist view of the world that has been banalized into something that human resources departments practice. Femi Taiwo is an assistant professor of philosophy at Georgetown. His book, Reconsidering Reparations, came out earlier this year. Femi Taiwo. So identity politics, loaded term, everybody likes to fight about it. We've come a long way from the Combahee River Collective, uh, haven't we? Like, what do we mean when we talk about identity politics? So I think it's helpful to start with what they meant, and we can compare and contrast with what it is that people are talking about now, because that kind of movement is the sort of thing that I'm trying to explain in the book, the thing that's symptomatic of elite capture. So... Originally, in the Combahee River Collective statement, you know, this is a group of Black queer women who are socialists and who come up with this analysis by working together, who are veterans of various movements. As they put it, it's just the ability to start off participating in politics from an understanding of where you fit in politics. Where are you in the social structure? How do the various aspects of the social structure that are oppressive affect you? And what does that mean for your priorities, for your analysis, for your way of looking at the world? You have a responsibility and an opportunity to understand where you fit in the grand scheme of things. And that's a starting position. Starting from there, you can get to deciding to participate in this cause or that cause or that this organization or that organization. You can work with other people from an understanding of where you fit into things and where your priorities are. And that's the way to work with other people. If you ask me, that's actually most effective and most helpful. Having your own understanding of what's important to you rather than just taking direction or fitting in as a side character into someone else's parochial struggle. You know, that's the basis for participating with other people on the basis of solidarity. Nowadays, people hear identity politics and I think they hear anti-coalitional, I'm just going to work with people like me kinds of approaches to politics. That's very far from how I understand it's starting. The original intention was universalizing and solidaristic, and now um, it's been viewed as something divisive and particularist. Yeah. How'd that happen? <laughs> the thing that I say in the book, and this is obviously the thing that I think as well, it's just a symptom of a broader disease, you could say. It's the same kind of thing that has happened to the world writ large, which is elite capture. And what elite capture is, is it's a kind of system behavior that happens in most systems, at least most systems this side of the revolution, you could say. We could start from a basic Marxist thought, right? Which is, if all history up until now has been history class level, let's say, what does that mean socially? Is that just about how exploitation is organized? Or is exploitation also something that is decisive for how the rest of society is organized? Does that have implications for how the rest of social life works? And I think the thought has often been that these kinds of distinctions are what tells you how social life works and not just economics. So in general, we have unequal systems, right? Those unequal systems are unequal in the kind of classic standard ways. 
Some people own corporations and assets. Some people don't. But that kind of inequality is a kind of inequality that shows up in the rest of social life. Some people have access to participating in academic research and other people don't. Some people have access in determining the context of media coverage and other people don't. And those kinds of advantage are just as non-random as other kinds of advantages. But those particular kinds of advantages, deciding what's in journals or what's in the media, help explain how ideas circulate and in what form they circulate and which versions of them circulate. So all that put together is just to say, which people are going to decide which version of identity politics, which way of thinking about identity politics is the one that's going to have the most resources behind it, the one that's going to hand out the most jobs, the one that's going to get covered on TV or on the radio or in legacy media outlets. It's going to be the kinds of people who make those decisions and the kinds of people who make those decisions are disproportionately this catch-all term that I've said, elites. Uh, you mentioned something that really has struck me also, uh, the CIA's Instagram feed, uh, in which they brag about their diversity and what a marvelous employer they are. <laughs> something like that is really striking. Now, is that cynical? Do you think they really believe what they're saying? Is this just a reflection of bourgeois consciousness that uh, doesn't have to be plotted, but just kind of wells up spontaneously in their brains? Yeah. So so the, the thing that I'm sure about is that I don't think a conspiracist explanation of elite capture makes much sense. You know, it's too diffuse of a phenomenon. There are too many organizations that you would have to have control over. So definitely the view I'm rejecting is like, look, elites of all kinds and stripes are just getting together in smoky boardrooms and deciding how we're going to mess up identity politics and everything else. I don't think that's the view. It also doesn't make much sense to me to have any particular psychological profile of the particular behaviors that end up diluting identity politics and many other kinds of politics besides. So I don't think there's a unified story to tell about why the CIA is doing that. That's a tough example because I'm, I really am skeptical that anyone or at least that many people really believe it matters whether it's Gina Haspel or some dude sending people to get tortured by the CIA and giving the thumbs up or down on coups or whatever they're up to these days. I don't think there's that many people who have the particular weird intersection of belief in the politics of representation and belief in the politics of empire to thread that particular needle. So it would be a fair read to take the CIA's identity campaign as as uh, pretty deliberately cynical. Um, but I think that would be misleading about the whole phenomenon. Like, I'm sure that your average decolonize this academic department person might have a very different psychological profile. You know, maybe there's some people participating in that that are cynical and that just want to win some attentional goods or positional goods or literal economic grants or something like that. Maybe there are people who are on the fence about whether or not this language makes sense, but just trust the people around them. Maybe there are people who are true believers and really think this is the way forward from the perspective of social justice and use these kinds of lefty aesthetic ways of talking to communicate that sort of thing. There isn't a unified thing to say, except that all these behaviors, all these decisions tend to contribute to the dilution of the phenomenon at a social structural level. A few years ago, I read a bunch of Italian elite theory, Pareto and Mosca and, uh, oh, Mikkels, yes, Pareto, Mosca and Mikkels. And they make the argument that elites are just inevitable in any kind of society. And of course, as a leftist, as a Marxist, I resist that, that there's somehow some inevitability about elite formation. But is that true? And what we should do is just try to make it as apparent and as obvious and as accountable as possible? Or is the dream of getting rid of elites uh, still worth pursuing? Yeah, this has been one of the interesting questions I've been thinking about. To what extent are elites a kind of necessary result of the fact that there's variation and some of the things that vary might be taken to, or might just be 
relevant to establishing who's considered good at what or who ends up having the kinds of traits that get outsized attention or whatever the goods are. Across millennia of human history, you do see elites more often than not. You do see hierarchies more often than not. The kind of thing Pareto's responding to is also the kind of thing theorists of hierarchy respond to, like Sidanius and Prado. There are ways that people are sorted and how people are sorted and why people are sorted might differ in societies. You might have a warrior class at the top in this society or a priestly class at the top in that society or a capital-owning class at the top in this society. But the sorting seems to happen regardless of these other things. And I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if elites can be eliminated as a social position or a set of social positions. I do think what is possible is changing what it means to be an elite. What it means to be an elite, that's the thing that differs across these different social structures. So if you have a very war-reliant society, then maybe the people on top are the are the warriors, right? That's the way things have gone in human history. And part of what that means is it's not just that you get respect for doing this particular kind of thing and being good at doing this particular kind of thing, but you get certain kind of measures of control, certain kinds of authority from being good at that thing, right? So Sparta is a place that gets run by warriors and it's not just that warriors are respected there or treated well there and that question of what power you have by way of being elite at something or in some sphere of activity that's a political question in the regular orthodox most straightforward of ways how is it that power is shared and wielded in a society and so what i think you could have is a society where being an elite means a different thing, where being an elite doesn't mean that you end up in control of all the resources. It doesn't mean that you get to hog even all the attention. Um, it just means that maybe you have a particular kind of recognized skill. Maybe Cuba is like this. They have a really strong public health system, and presumably there are doctors and researchers who are very good. But all this means is that when we need to say, produce vaccines for COVID that we ask those people, right? So, so it doesn't mean that you get to decide what everybody's public health system is. And that's because the political organization within which those people are elites at this or that aspect of public health isn't constructed to then give them all these other advantages that aren't built into the idea of being an elite. I'm speaking with the philosopher Femi Taiwo. I guess there's an anti-elitist practice that's common in the NGO and nonprofit culture in particular, rules of deference, you call it, or centering the most marginalized. What are the limits of that kind of anti-elitism? The big limit that I talk most about in the book is the limit that comes from whatever aspects of society determine entry into any social space, but particularly the kinds of social spaces that you access via having some kinds of advantages. In the discussion just now, we were talking about widening out the discussion from from whether or not there is elites to a more holistic way of looking at society. Well, how is society organized? And that's the place where you're going to find the aspects of social organization that explain what it means to be an elite. And similarly, in NGO kinds of spaces, right? We live in a capitalist society, a racial capitalist society, and that means that there are all the kinds of inequalities that we already know about and talk about all the time in terms of who is able to access the particular kinds of education or the particular kinds of other credentials that put you in a position to be say, on the board of a nonprofit or even in the spaces that a lot of these NGOs operate in. And so if you start from a room, in this case, a set of jobs and positions that you can only access if you have this previous, whatever forms of advantages allowed you to access the education that you needed or the credentials that you needed to get into that room, If you wait till the end of all those processes and then say, well, we're going to center the most marginalized, and by center the most marginalized, we mean center the most marginalized person who made it into this room, 
then you know you're going to get some distortions that are just the kind of result of all those previous forms of inequality, all those previous forms of stratification, so on and so forth. I don't think that that strategy is necessarily going to be the best approach for actually doing what it says, centering the most marginalized. Yeah, I've noticed that people who say that are often the ones, the philanthropists who write the checks. <laughs> so like, they're really not, <laughs> not overturning the established order in any meaningful sense. Yeah. You write about how so much of left politics consists of negatives. We're anti-capitalist, anti-carceral, anti-racist. And I plead guilty to this myself. I've been doing this for decades. We're pretty good at the critique, not so good at uh, rebuilding this world. <laughs> what can we do about that? <laughs> Is it something that we could just think differently about? Or do we need to organize differently? How do we change this habit? We can think differently about it. You know, I'm a philosopher. It's going to be hard for me to ever take thinking differently entirely off the table. But I think primarily it's a question of practical activity. What things are we trying to do? Um, and the example that I use in the book is of Flint because it's an important one and people have heard of it. But in Flint, the water was poisoned and the water was poisoned because of you know a variety of things, but one of one of those being the condition of the pipes. We could think differently about the problem or talk about the problem differently. And I'd be the last person to stand in the way of making either of those kinds of changes. But eventually you do have to change the actual pipes. If you want the water to be clean, there are practical things that you have to do. And having that as an objective and trying to work towards that kind of naturally puts some brakes on purely oppositional purely intellectual ways of relating to these kinds of political problems. It was actually trying to get the water clean that served as an orientation tool. Like this is how we know if we've succeeded um, or at least are making things better. Um, it's very clear, it's identifiable. We can test the water and see if there's still lead and Legionnaire's disease in it. And that's the kind of thing that we can adopt more generally. All of these issues are still going to be there. You know, we're still going to wonder whether we're doing right with respect to racism, patriarchy, and all the rest. Those things aren't going to go away. But doing the sort of aesthetic things of making sure to talk about those important issues in precisely the right way, um, it's just not going to be the point if the main thing that we're doing is trying to achieve measurable concrete goals, trying to build things. I don't think it's any accident that a lot of the successful campaigns that are happening now, whether we're talking about the wave of Amazon or Starbucks unionizations, or whether we're talking about tenants' rights groups, tenants' unions pushing back against developers and the sort, seem to have been able to thread this needle. You write at some length about Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau. What can we learn from their struggle against the Portuguese? These are small places that people don't give much thought to, but uh, what can we learn from them? There's so many things we can learn from them, but maybe I'll just mention two to start off with. One of the things we can learn from them is a high stakes version of the same thought that we just talked about. So it wasn't that there weren't any identity issues or issues of racial stratification or ethnic differences or religious differences in the... Cape Verde and Bissau Guinean struggle for independence. There were all of those things. And those things played a powerful role in deciding how and to what extent unity was a thing that the organization was able to maintain. But people were able to, for long enough, collaborate across those differences and succeed in the struggle against a whole empire, a NATO member. It was a big deal. And not only were people able to work across those differences in Guinea-Bissau, but people were, in fact, working across those differences on a planetary scale. Cuba sent troops to fight. That's, that's something no other country did. They have a habit of that, don't they? Yeah, it's very important in uh, recent African history that Cuba took these steps, right? But... The Soviet Union offered training. 
Bulgaria, Sweden, China, all of these places pitched in. And this national level struggle that looks like it's just this small country versus this bigger country, this empire, NATO member, wasn't. And the fact that it wasn't just a struggle between those two sides is an important part of why that struggle went the way that it did. The Organization of African Unity, Guinea-Conakry, next to Guinea-Bissau, folks in the organizational structure of the United Nations, on top of all the countries that I mentioned already, these were all people who were not just offering thoughts and prayers to the militants in Guinea-Bissau, but helping in tangible ways. And the kind of solidarity that they were trying to build both within their struggle and across struggles is strategically important and not just morally important. There's also a role of affect, which I think is somewhat related to what you're talking about. The right offers emotional rewards. I mean, some sometimes very ugly, but nationalism and bigotry can be very energizing. The left seems to have a vacuum in the affective emotional realm. We used to have the, uh, the utopian impulse that struggle for liberation that you're talking about in the 70s, uh, Guinea-Bissau and, and Cape Verde. But I don't know, we seem to have lost that. Uh, what happened and how can we regain it? They have some kind of structural advantages that I think are built into their approach to politics. Even beyond the fact that there's a sort of affinity between right-wing politics and the most resourced, you know, the billionaires, the arch-capitalists, there's also just the fact that siding with the status quo, or at least the most part of the status quo that does the most claiming of tradition, let's say, you know, you're siding essentially with winners. You're either decide you're siding with the winners of today's economy when you're siding with billionaires, and you're siding the winners of yesterday's political contests when you side with the status quo, the dominant culture. And there's obviously exceptions to this, but I think broadly speaking, this is what's true. You know, the sort of people who are able to stably appeal to traditional common sense are making this kind of move. And that is just inherently energizing in a particular kind of way. There's a readily available right side of history kind of good feeling that comes from taking up that as something to defend. And on the left, we have a harder job to do when we're trying to energize people for a task that feels like the whole world is against, that feels like the whole weight of history is against, that feels like the whole present state of economics and politics is against. And I don't know in general, in some kind of trans-historical way, how we would gear people up for that. But I do think we're in a better position in 2022 to gear people up for that than many generations have been. And that is just the fact that politically speaking, the left really did win a lot in the same era that the bissau Guinean and Cape Verdean struggle was a part of. And that's a history that I do so much talking about, partly because this is my kind of suspicion, or this is my guess, or this is my hope, maybe I should say. But prior to the end of the Second World War, there were very few member nations of the United Nations. Much of the world, particularly of Asia and Africa, was under very explicit formal colonial domination. And in the space of a few decades, much of that was rolled back on a planetary scale. Much of Asia and Africa, India, Vietnam, Ghana in the kind of early days, and then many, many more countries after these. One struggles for national independence, one struggles against colonialism, at least, you know, the formal version of colonialism. And, you know, we could sit here focusing entirely on what we didn't win and we should be should take that seriously and look that in the face but we have the opportunity to in a serious way on a planetary scale think of ourselves as winners as well and maybe we can draw a similar kind of energy from that I was going to say something skeptical in reaction to that, but I think I'll suppress that impulse <laughs> 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 just end on a positive note <laughs> 
Hosemi Taiwo, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Georgetown and author of Elite Capture, just out from Haymarket. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of You Are Right by Built to Spill. The 1990s seemed so innocent in retrospect. Till next week, bye.